Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 26th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. For those people who um, joined the Christogenia chat room during the programs, Clifton Amheiser is not in the chat tonight. An amazing thing happened this week. AT&T canceled the internet service of a 90-year-old man for a terms of service violation. Canceled his internet service from home, shut down his email, canceled his email, and and um, only gave him an ambiguous message that he violated their terms of service. I can't imagine what Clifton Emmerheiser may be doing that would cause AT&T to feel that way. I hope that um, I can investigate it in the future. We hope to be at Clifton's home in a couple of weeks. I don't know if he'll have any more information than what he's already told me. And, and he is working on obtaining a different internet provider. So, for those people who keep track of Clifton and may worry why he's not in the chat or at the Christogenia chat server this evening after the program, as he customarily is, there's your answer. And preferably Clifton will be back online soon. Wow. Imagine AT&T doing something like that. Tonight we are going to present part three of our commentary on Paul's first epistle to Timothy. And this is subtitled, Leadership Credentials. If we've heard a lot of this, and and I really tried to um, make it as different as I could, if we heard a lot of this when we presented Titus, only within the last six or eight weeks, I apologize. As we have already explained, Paul of Tarsus was writing Timothy while en route from the Troad through Macedonia as he traveled to Nicopolis in Epirus, where he had planned on spending the winter before a visit to Corinth in the spring of 57 AD. Timothy is still in Ephesus, from where Paul had recently departed, and Paul is exhorting him in areas which he must have felt needed special attention, hoping that Timothy would pass these things on in the course of his teachings to the Ephesians. Paul's comments supporting our interpretation are found in chapter 4 of this letter. And when we arrive at that point, we will have much more to say about this. In the last presentation of our commentary on this first epistle to Timothy, in chapter 2, we saw that the apostle passed on to his younger companion a brief sketch depicting the demeanor which he hoped would be borne by all Christian men that they should endeavor to lead quiet and peaceful lives and be found in supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving on behalf of their fellows. Here it should be noted that this does not mean that Paul expects Christian men to be merely passive keepers of the faith, sitting around all day on their asses and passing the time in prayer. Rather, Paul has described the attitude of Christian men, and not their activity. He has explained how they should be found carrying themselves as they toil and struggle in their Christian walk for the objective of accomplishing good deeds, 
works, resulting in the accumulation of treasure in heaven. Things which he mentions here in chapters 4 through 6 of this epistle. The true Christian activity is proactive and neither sedentary nor pacifist. Paul went on to describe the expected deportment of Christian women, that they should be modest and that they should not seek to speak in public or to be teachers of men. Rather, Paul taught that women should be raising faithful families, being delivered through childbearing, submitting themselves to their husbands in the pattern of Yahweh's order of creation. As we continue through this epistle, Paul has further instructions for other classes of people. And he commences here in chapter 3 by speaking of those who may seek leadership positions within the Christian assembly. First we will discuss the first clause of the chapter, which is only four words. Trustworthy is this saying. The phrase, pistos hologos, or trustworthy is this saying, may have been rendered, faithful is this word. The 6th century Codex Claromontanus has, this is a saying of men instead, for which we may compare Paul's words in passages such as Romans chapter 3 verse 5, or chapter 6 verse 19. However, somehow we doubt that Paul actually used such a formula here. As we noted where it appeared in chapter 1, this same phrase appears three times in this epistle and once in the second epistle to Timothy. On the other occasions, it is part of a longer adage, trustworthy is this saying and worthy of all repentance, on the other occasions where it appears here. Here it is difficult to determine whether Paul had intended to apply this remark to the statement which preceded at the end of chapter 2 or to the statement which follows in the next sentence of this chapter. The Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece, which also makes a note of this problem, has this phrase at the end of the last sentence of chapter 2. With that, we are inclined to agree. That is how we originally had the passage arranged in our first unpublished edition of our translation of Paul's epistles. It's still not published. It will never be published. But in the typesetting of the Christogenia New Testament, it was somehow placed here with the balance of this first verse, which is where the King James Version also has it placed. We hope to correct this in a future edition, as we are persuaded that it belongs to the end of chapter 2. The chapter and verse divisions of scripture are a late medieval contrivance, I think in the 16th century, and they do not belong to the original manuscripts. This leads us to another short but necessary discussion concerning the adjective pistis, which is faithful or trustworthy, and the related noun pistis, which is faith or belief, 
the adjective ends in OS and the noun is PISTIS, saying the Greek letters in English. Many people, even identity Christians, endeavor to fix to affix a mystical quality to these words and imagine that every time they appear in scripture they are used to describe a certain faith which is the Christian faith in salvation through Christ or belief in God etc. That is not at all true that these words should always have such a signification. Often these words appear in scripture bearing only a general sense as these words are the common Greek words for trust or belief. And they can describe a trust or a belief in anything. You can have this pistis, this faith that the sky is blue. That doesn't mean that you believe the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Christ. So where Paul says trustworthy is this saying, or, as it may also be translated, faithful is this word, he only means to indicate that a particular statement is reliably true. Now to present 1 Timothy chapter 3, at least where we should draw the line. If anyone strives for an office of supervisor or bishop, he is desirous of a good work. Now, we are not persuaded that Paul meant that this saying is trustworthy, since he is evidently speaking only of honest Christian men who would seek such a position. In later times, there are many men in history who acquired such an office for nefarious purposes, and Paul, as well as the other apostles, speak of and warn us of such infiltrators in diverse places. The office of supervisor is the office of bishop. And bishop is an English word that evolved from the original Greek word episcopus. In medieval Latin, episcopus or episcopus was translated as episcopus the first P being replaced with a B. Then, in Old English, it was spelled Biscop. The leading E was dropped, and the trailing syllable, U.S., which was really just a Greek ending, was dropped. And finally, Biscop, B-I-S-C-E-O-P, evolved into the modern word Bishop. Now, if you check the 1560 Geneva Bible, bishop is spelled with two P's and an E at the end. It's a longer word. So, bishop is essentially the same word as episcopus. And it is not even a proper translation. Like other words, it was brought into English for the purpose of organized church government. We prefer to translate the word literally as overseer or supervisor, since it literally describes one who watches over something. There is a similar passage in 1 Peter chapter 5 where we read, The elders which are among you I exhort, 
who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And there we see Peter tell the elders that they have the responsibility of taking the oversight of their respective communities. The verb is the Greek word episkapeo, the verb equivalent of the office of episcopus, supervisor, overseer, or bishop. We notice that Peter informed these men, these elders who were prospective bishops, that they were not lords over God's heritage, but that they should be examples to the flock in that same manner. Paul of Tarsus told the Corinthians in his epistles to them that he would not lord over their faith. We are all brethren. We have one Lord, Christ. And the quicker we learn that, the quicker we can repent and recognize Christ as King and get out of this mess that we're in. But of course that will only happen on God's time. He knows when we will finally repent. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we read of Paul and Barnabas, who were traveling through parts of Anatolia. And it says that elders being elected by them in each assembly, praying with fasting, they presented them in whom they had confidence with the authority. Now, the King James translation of that passage, aside from some other things that I have contention with, has ordained rather than elected, as if Paul was a pope appointing his own favorites to rule over the assemblies of Christ. But the Greek word is kairotonio, which only appears twice in the New Testament, both times in the Acts of the the other time, I'm sorry, the first time is in the book of Acts, the second time is in Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. Liddell and Scott, in the seventh edition of their Greek English, Greek English lexicon, define kairotonio as to stretch out the hand for the purpose of voting, to vote for or elect properly by a show of hands, and in the passive, to be elected. Election was opposed to appointment by lot. The word kairotonethenahi being opposed to the verb lakine. And this is the natural meaning of the compound word. Since its component words, kair and tanus, are a hand and a stretching respectively. So we are stretching the hand. The ninth edition of Liddell and Scott does add the word appoint 
to the word's definition, yet it is obviously following the so-called church authorities because it only cites the two passages where it is used in the New Testament where the word appears. But it doesn't cite any secular authority in order to show that the word was ever actually used in such a manner. I would rather not believe the church. I would rather believe the profane or secular Greek writers, how they use the word. Chirotonio means to elect, to vote for. So while all elders of the Christian community should be respected, a man strives for an office of supervisor by seeking to be elected by the people of the community to have such a responsibility. The verb for strive here in this verse is quite interesting. The King James Version has only desire. The verb is orego, which means to reach, to stretch, to stretch out oneself, to stretch forth one's hand. It's very nearly a synonym of the more explicit chirotonio. And metaphorically, it may mean to reach after, grasp at, or yearn for a thing. But it's almost as if you're raising your hand that you want to assume this position. And then, in turn, the people of the assembly raise their hands to vote for you, or perhaps for someone else who desires the position. Paul discussed the qualities which should be found in a man who is desirous of such a position, from verse 2. And he says, therefore, it is necessary for that supervisor to be irreproachable, a husband of one wife, sober, discreet, orderly, hospitable, and inclined to teach. According to Liddell and Scott, the word anepileptus, Strong's number 423, which is irreproachable here, means not open to attack, not censured, or, as the King James Version has it in this passage, blameless. The character of the man which is chosen as leader by the assembly reflects upon the entire assembly, and therefore he should be beyond reproach. The leader of a Christian assembly should be the husband of one wife, We spoke at great length on this subject and from various perspectives. A mere ten weeks ago, in part two of our presentation of Paul's epistle to Titus, where Paul had given the same advice that he gives to Timothy in this epistle. So here we will only summarize some of our opinions on this admonition. While there was no specific law in scripture saying that a woman could not divorce a husband, In the ancient world, it was nearly impossible for a woman to divorce a husband, unless she was from a wealthy family, as she had no property rights and no state-enforced parental rights as we now know them. There were no divorce courts in the ancient world, and although later on in Rome, divorce was governed by a few laws, only a few, in the Old Testament, a man divorced a woman simply by putting her out of his house. For that reason, the law required a man to write the woman a bill of divorcement, 
so that the woman, who typically had no property rights, had the opportunity to find refuge with another man. Deuteronomy chapter 24. A woman could only divorce a husband by walking away. That was her only escape. And she would almost certainly end up as a slave or as a whore. Levitical priests were required by law to marry virgins, and they were prohibited from marrying divorced women, Leviticus chapter 21, verses 7 and 14. But for the rest of the children of Israel, it was permissible to marry a woman who had been divorced. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And while a man taking a wife who had not been divorced may have rightfully expected her to be a virgin, it was still not a requirement. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 22. And I'll explain that, but it's not in my notes. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, what we see is a man who takes a wife and finds some uncleanness in her. In her, And it doesn't say that she must be returned to her father. It doesn't say that she must be put away. It only says that the man has an opportunity that he may bring her back to her father. That's all it says. And then if the parents can prove she was a virgin, the man would pay a penalty. But if they didn't have the tokens of her virginity, there would be no penalty. But the man has to return her and choose on his own to return her immediately. He can't just keep her for a few years and, and, and that then say that there's something wrong. In Paul's time, because it was so difficult for a woman to divorce a husband, and because it was relatively easy for a husband to divorce a woman, the burden of responsibility for keeping the marriage intact and healthy fell mainly, actually almost entirely, on the shoulders of the man. But, if a woman walked away from a marriage in Paul's time, she was ostensibly making a great sacrifice, which could stand as a testimony against the man's character. Today, however, in many cases, the woman assumes very little risk, and often, the woman is more, it is more financially attractive for a woman to divorce than to stay married. So, many women divorce their husbands under whim. And often they profit from the evil deed. Under today's circumstances, only the most virtuous of women disrespect the gods of state and submit themselves to Yahweh their God through their husbands. So where Paul says that those seeking the office of supervisor in a Christian assembly should be the husband of one wife, we today would not put blame on men whose former wives took advantage of them under this wicked modern system. But nevertheless, such a man must demonstrate the ability to keep a commitment on his own part. And that is the important aspect of Paul's admonition. If a man has not kept his commitment to a wife, neither can he be trusted to keep a commitment to the assembly of Christ. And as Paul later advises, if a man cannot manage a family and raise his own children, 
neither can he be trusted to look over the assembly of the children of Yahweh. However, there is another difference between Paul's time and ours. Today's church bishops, I should say so-called church bishops, are mostly figureheads who have no real control over the lives of the people in their assemblies. The state has usurped all control and all authority. So church is reduced to a one hour a week activity for most people who usually spend the rest of their time engaging with the wider civic community in the wicked and non-Christian world. If anyone could be expelled from such an assembly, they can simply join the next church in the community. But in Paul's time, Christians were committed to their faith and separated themselves from the world, forsaking the civic community and having for community only the assembly of Christians, while living and working to edify that assembly in meaningful ways. So the supervisors of such assemblies had great authority to govern the behavior of their members. And if a member was expelled for some grievous sin, it would lead to greater consequences as there were fewer places left to turn. The sinner would be compelled to return to the pagan world, even being separated from his or her own family. The word translated as sober here is Nathalios, Strong's number 3524, for which the King James Version has vigilant. But while Nathalios literally means unmixed with wine, or wineless, the fact that Paul used another word, paroinus, in the verse which follows, shows that he did not mean to use nephalios in its strict literal sense here. The word paroinus, or as it's written in classical Greek, paroinicus, means addicted to wine, where we have drunkard in verse 3, where the King James Version has given to wine. The word sophron is to be of sound mind, but also sensible, discreet, or wise, or, in its secondary sense, having control over the sensual desires, temperate, self-controlled, moderate, or chaste. And for that we have discreet, where the King James Version rather ironically has sober. The next word in order, cosmios is akin to cosmos, which is often translated as world in the King James Version. But cosmios is primarily, I'm sorry, cosmos is primarily order. And then of people, it is behavior or decency. And cosmos, or cosmios, I'm sorry, I'm screwing up. Cosmios is therefore orderly or well-behaved and even regular or moderate. This is why to us, where cosmos, this is one reason why to us, where cosmos is employed as a noun, it means society, 
which is the order of the inhabited world, as the Greeks and Romans perceived it. And it is not merely a reference to the planet itself, which is absolutely ridiculous. The word for hospitable here is philozenos, which is literally loving strangers, and therefore hospitable. As the law says in Exodus chapter 22, Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. The intent is expressed more completely in Deuteronomy chapter 10, where it says, He does execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loves the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore this stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. However, there were several words for stranger in Hebrew, and when they are compared it becomes evident that the word ger, Strong's number, Strong's Hebrew Dictionary number 1616, which appears in both of those passages, is rather close in meaning to its Greek equivalent, xenos, which, according to Liddell and Scott, is not merely any stranger, but a guest friend. A citizen of a foreign state with whom one has a treaty of hospitality. It is anyone entitled to hospitality. Not all aliens had such an expectation of hospitality, and Christians are not expected to extend hospitality to those who are outside of the covenants of God, from whom in other scriptures... Christians are commanded to separate themselves. In 2 John verses 9 to 11, we read, Each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not Yahweh. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house and do not speak to welcome him For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. So the expectation for a Christian leader to be hospitable does not nullify the expectation for Christians to reject all those who reject Christ and his doctrine. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we read, the admonition, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless? And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, Just as Yahweh had said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them, and be separated, says the prince, and do not be joined to the impure, or the unclean, and I will admit you, 
And I will be to you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the Almighty Prince. So the expectation for a Christian leader to be hospitable does not nullify the expectation for Christians to separate themselves from all of those whom Christ did not cleanse. And the promises of cleansing in Christ were only made to the children of Israel, who are the only people under the covenant of Christ. Hospitality does not trump the law and the covenants and the promises of Yahweh. So hospitality is only for those who are under the law and the covenants and the promises of Yahweh. Where Paul says, at last, in this verse, that such supervisors should be inclined, or, as the King James Version has it, apt to teach. In Romans chapter 15, we see one place where Paul describes what they should teach, where it says in verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament, might have hope. So it is the Scriptures which should be taught, as Paul had also admonished the Hebrews where he told them, in chapter 5 of his epistle, that for when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers, ye need Ye have need that one teacheth you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, speaking of the same Old Testament, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. The comfort in the scriptures, no matter where you read them, is a comfort for the children of Israel alone and for no one else. The scriptures of the Old Testament offer comfort for no one else. In fact, when you read passages such as Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 11, it tells you that all other nations are going to be destroyed, except the children of Israel. And it repeats that elsewhere in Jeremiah. And when it tells, when you read Obadiah in the scriptures, it tells you that All the heathens, all the non-Israelite nations feeding on Yahweh's holy mountain, the children of Israel, are going to be destroyed. Only Israelites, only the children of Israel, could have comfort in those Old Testament scriptures that Paul referred to in Romans chapter 15. Any other race that reads them should be severely discomfited, especially if you're a Jew. Continuing with his list of leadership credentials, Paul recommends that such men be not a drunkard, and not a brawler, but reasonable, not contentious, not loving money. And as we have already explained that the word paroinus which is spelled paroinicus in the older classical writings because they use the genitive case form of the word oinus, means addicted to wine, where we have drunkard in this verse. 
Again, if Paul meant to demand complete abstention in verse 2, where he used the word nathalios, then his statement here would be completely unnecessary. So, nathalios, which literally means unmixed with wine, should be interpreted metaphorically. And according to Liddell and Scott, the word did have metaphoric uses in regard to things other than wine. This becomes further evident where Paul advised Timothy himself to use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities, where he used the word oinus in chapter 5 of this epistle. The Greeks esteemed wine to have certain medicinal qualities, and Paul of Tarsus cannot be interpreted in a manner which forces him to contradict himself. The Greek word plagtes is brawler here, as we asserted when we presented a very similar admonition by Paul found in chapter 1 verse 7 of the epistle to Titus. The word is not meant to insist that men be chosen as leaders who would not fight as cowardice and effeminacy are disdained in the laws of God. But rather, Paul encourages that these leaders not be pugnacious, or men who are quarrelsome or too quick to fight. Now, here, after the word brawler, the King James Version follows some very late manuscripts which interpolate a word that is found in Paul's similar admonition to Titus, and which is translated not greedy of filthy lucre. That phrase does not belong to the original text of this passage. Then the King James Version continues with the phrase, but patient, where we have rendered the phrase, but reasonable. And it is a response to the admonition that a leader not be a brawler, where we have not a brawler, but reasonable. So the interpolation actually breaks a thought in half. It breaks the continuity of the thought here, where it says, not a brawler, but reasonable, which is pretty clumsy of the interpolators. But that helps to establish that it was indeed an interpolation. It's not in any of the great uncial manuscripts of the 4th through 6th centuries. The Greek word amakon in its primary sense was used to describe a person with whom no one fights, a person unconquered, unconquerable, or even invincible, according to Liddell and Scott. However, here in this context, it is nearly a synonym with plectes, and should be interpreted in its secondary sense to mean disinclined to fight, peaceful, not contentious, as it was also often used in the classical literature. Lastly, Paul advises that prospective leaders are not lovers of money. The single Greek word is aphil argoris, aphila argoris, and it is literally without love of silver or money. The King James Version has only not covetous. 
It is not money which is problematical. Money is simply a tool, a portion of something exchanged for a relatively equal and agreed-upon value of something else, of which the necessary use is mentioned throughout Scripture in one form or another. Rather, Paul says in chapter 6 of this epistle that it is the love of money which is the root of all evil, and not the money itself. And as a digression, because I love to point this out, the English word money is said to have been derived from the Latin equivalent, moneta. However, in truth, both words are derived from the Hebrew word, mona, which means something weighed out, which is in turn from a verb, mana, which is to weigh out or to enumerate. So the Hebrew word mona, M-O-N-E-H, gives us our English word money, M-O-N-E-Y, and the Latin equivalent, M-O-N-E-T-A, moneta, which is still used in Italy today to designate currency. Before we continue, we want to address Paul's admonitions concerning sobriety and drunkenness in verses 2 and 3. There is an issue which often causes confusion, especially in certain denominational churches, but which is also frequently carried over amongst identity Christians, and which we feel obliged to clarify here. There are two Greek words which appear in the New Testament that are used to describe wine, which are oinus and glucus. According to Liddell and Scott, oinus is wine, and the word has no other significant meaning. The word glucus is sweet new wine, and in a secondary sense. Because the wine is intended to ferment, but may not yet be fermented, it may refer to grape juice. The yeasts which cause grape juice to ferment are naturally found in the skins of the grapes, and without modern refrigeration or canning and pasteurization, in ancient times people could not keep their grape juice from fermenting. That being said, there are other Greek words which describe wine or grape juice, but which never appear in the New Testament. Among these are trucks, which is wine not yet fermented and racked off, for which a technical English term is must. They call it must. Wine which is, wineries call it must. Wine which is not yet fermented and racked off. Methe is simply strong drink of any sort. Oxus, which is poor wine or vinegar which was made from it. <coughs> Calus, which is neat wine and cereon, which is new wine boiled down. Some of these are technical terms, and we list them here to show that there was another word which described grape juice, or unfermented wine, which is trux. But oinus was not used by the Greeks to describe grape juice or unfermented wine. The word oxus appears in scripture, but is not considered here since it is always translated as vinegar and never as wine. And that is proper, 
that is absolutely proper. One other word that appears in the New Testament is sicara, or sicara, which refers to an intoxicating beverage, but which is not directly related to grapes or wine. It only appears in Luke chapter 1 verse 15. Of all these Greek words which describe wine, only oinus and glucus appear in the New Testament. Of these, oinus is the common Greek word for wine, and it was always used by the Greeks to describe a fermented product. Where it had other odd uses, it still referred to a sort of wine. For instance, it was often coupled with the word krithe, which means barley. And oinus krithe described beer, which the Greeks called barley wine. Now, glucus may refer to mere grape juice, or to wine in the early stages of fermentation, called new wine. But the word glucus is only found in Acts chapter 2, verse 13. All other occurrences of the word wine in the New Testament are from oinus, or from compound words, which include oinus. Teetotalers claim that the scripture teaches absolute abstention from alcoholic beverages, but that is certainly not true. Then they claim that Christ and the apostles never drank wine, but only drank grape juice, and neither is that true. If the apostles had always used the word glucose to describe wine, the teetotalers might have an argument, but the apostles did no such thing. Since the apostles always, except on that one occasion in Acts chapter 2, used the word oinus to describe wine, the argument by the teetotalers defies reality. That is because by arguing that Jesus and the apostles did not drink wine, they make the poor assumption that the apostles did not know the meanings of these basic Greek words. We would assert that the apostles certainly did know the meanings of, the, of these words, and that the apostles chose to use the appropriate terminology wherever such words appear. So oinus is indeed fermented wine, and glucus, where it is used at Acts 2.13, may have been grape juice, especially since in that passage the apostles were not expected to have been drinking fermented wine so early in the morning. The Greeks, even their children, commonly drank glucus or new wine in the early morning hours, and they did not expect to become intoxicated by it. Likewise, the English, all throughout the medieval period, and the Germans commonly drank ale throughout the day, even for breakfast, and probably did get intoxicated by it. Of course, being Christians, we should all agree that drunkenness is sinful. And I'm drinking tea tonight. Not for this reason. But that all things which are not proscribed in God's law may be employed in moderation for useful purposes. Where wine is abused, we read in Proverbs chapter 20 that wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, 
and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise, because all you have to do is not drink. But where wine may be used kindly, we read in the in the 104th Psalm, the praises of Yahweh God where it is said that he causes the grass to grow for the cattle, the herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine which makes the heart of glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengthens a man's heart. Paul continues by admonishing that the leader of a Christian assembly must have been the head of his own household, something that was probably easier to do before the state and its intrusive government agencies became involved in and usurped authority over our families, something that was unheard of in the ancient world. Thus he says that such a man should be found governing his own house well, having children in subjection with all reverence. In subjection, not only to the man, but to the law of God. With this, Paul asks, in a rhetorical and parenthetical remark, Now if one does not know to govern his own house, how would he care for an assembly of Yahweh? It is no mistake that perhaps only two generations after various governments of state throughout the formerly Christian nations had enabled sodomites to emerge from a social secrecy, that we have corrupted, we have a corrupted generation of youth who are entirely confused about gender and who reject traditional sexual relationships in favor of every perversion. We have had men and women as community leaders, school teachers, ministers, and priests, and in other positions of authority in our communities, who were not held to this standard. And now in a very short time, the entire society is corrupted and perverted. Supposedly, religious authorities such as the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches have not adequately countered this trend because the churches themselves never really cared for the scriptural authority of the letters of Paul or for the laws of Yahweh. The Roman Catholic Church abandoned this principle that a leader should be the husband of one wife and raise his own family 900 years ago when it formally began to forbid its priests to marry in the 12th century, at the Second Lateran Council held in 1139 A.D. In some places, celibacy was demanded of priests at a much sooner time, and as early as 304 A.D. at the Council of Elvira. But the provisions were rejected at Nicahia a couple of decades later. Now, we will not address the fact here that there is no authority for such an organized Christian priesthood in Scripture in the first place. It at least had the appearance of legitimacy when priests got married and raised families. The churches have abused certain Scriptures in order to demand celibacy of its priests. 
The chief of these is where Christ said in the gospel that some men had made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Matthew 19.12 While in that passage he was speaking chiefly of himself, even if men followed him in that aspect for one reason or another, there is still no indication that Christ expected such men to, to be appointed as community leaders, or that all men working for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven should live as eunuchs. Another scripture which the Catholics abuse is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verses 25 and 26, where Paul said that he had no commandment, but an opinion that it was better for a man to be a virgin than to be married. However, the churches completely ignore the context of Paul's discussion in that passage. He was speaking of a time of intense persecution of Christians, and therefore he had said in verse 26 that because of the present violence that it is well for a man to remain unmarried. And then, if a man decided to marry anyway, that these will have anxiety in the flesh. And for my part, of you I am merciful. Of course, common sense would indicate that in times of extreme duress, it is not good to start a family. And Paul's advice was predicated on that circumstance. Furthermore, Paul's words in that passage had nothing to do with the selection of Christian leaders. This is the deceit of the Catholic churches, which has been ongoing over this issue for over nine centuries. Wherein 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul had explained that ministers and teachers of the Christian assembly should be supported by those assemblies. He asked, speaking of himself and Barnabas, do we not have license to always have with us a kinswoman, a wife, as also the other ambassadors, and the brethren of the prince, and Cephas, meaning Peter? So we see that all of the other apostles, of all of the other apostles, only Paul and perhaps Barnabas, had forsaken marriage. A little later on, Paul explains that he did this and refrained from some of the other things which he had license to do in order that we should not give any hindrance to the good message of the anointed. In the context of that passage, it becomes evident that Paul, because he was constantly traveling and was usually supported by the assemblies, felt that he would be unburdened and of better service to the gospel of Christ if he remained unmarried. But Paul was an exception in that it was his commission from Yahshua Christ to bring the gospel before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. As it says in Acts 15. Acts, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 15. And as Christ had told him when he was only a young man to go because I shall send you off to distant nations which Paul describes in Acts chapter 22. The rule cannot be nullified by the exception. Missionary work in distant lands is now completed, as we no longer live in the age of fishers, 
and all of the scattered children of Israel have heard the gospel of Christ. As it says in Jeremiah chapter 31, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now we live in the age of hunters, in a different dispensation. The advice Paul gives to Timothy here is ostensibly for the stationary Christian assemblies being established in diverse places. In this same manner, Paul had already written to Titus that those set into the position of leaders be blameless, the husband of one, of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. If a man has not sufficient experience raising a family, how can that man advise others on raising their families? How can a man be a righteous guide to many families within a community if he has no experience raising his own? Rather, the unnatural practice of celibacy, which has been advanced by the organized churches, has encouraged the propagation of all sorts of perversions. Of course, for many generations now, Catholic priests have been suspected and accused of molesting innumerable boys and adolescent young men, and they have failed to address that situation adequately even among themselves. It is no wonder, as I have often only quipped in the past, they have rather unnaturally altered boys under the pretense of employing them at the altar. It should be no wonder, since church policy itself has authored this perverted situation. Paul continues his advice concerning true Christian leadership credentials and advises that leaders not be chosen from amongst neophytes. That these men appointed leaders should not be a neophyte, lest blinded, I'm sorry, blinded with pride, he would fall into condemnation of the false accuser or the devil. The Greek word tufo, tufao perhaps, which is found in the New Testament only in the epistles to Timothy, here and in chapter 6 and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, is literally to wrap in smoke and metaphorically in the passive, to be in the clouds, to be crazed or demented, according to Liddell and Scott. So literally, the phrase here is, lest wrapped in smoke, he would fall into the condemnation of the false accuser. Perhaps the word is fitting. Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon, gives a secondary meaning. To be blinded with pride or conceit, with which Liddell and Scott agree when the verb is used in the passive voice, as it is here. In different contexts, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we have conceited, and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, demented. Timothy himself was a relatively young man, 
And in chapter 4 of this epistle, Paul tells him to let no man despise your youth, but you must be a model of those believing in word, in conduct, in love, in faith, in chastity. So Paul could not have intended here to exclude merely younger men from leadership positions. Paul himself was considered a young man at the stoning of Stephen, which is evident in the closing verses of Acts chapter 7. In light of Paul's many other statements to Timothy here, Timothy must have been learned in scripture and have had sufficient experience in accord with all of Paul's other instructions here. We chose to use the borrowed word neophyte here, where the King James Version has novice, as the Greek term used by Paul is literally newly planted. The Dell and Scott have newly planted, or metaphorically, a new convert, a neophyte. In the book of Acts, it may be apparent that some of the men whom Paul chose to assist him in his ministry were relatively new converts to Christianity. But those men had experience in the scriptures before they were converted. Neither Titus nor Timothy were converted from paganism, but rather Paul had met both of these men in the synagogues of the Judeans. Christianity being the precise fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures that these men had already studied, they were not truly neophytes. So it is more likely that Paul refers to new converts who are unlearned and warns that they should not be appointed as leaders, not understanding the scriptures for reason of pride or vanity. They may more easily do something by which devils looking to subvert the Christian assembly may condemn and entrap them. Paul's warning in the next verse continues in that same manner. Now it is necessary also to have a good accreditation from those outside, lest he fall into a reproach and a trap of the false accuser, or the devil. In both of these verses, the term false accuser is from the substantive form of the adjective diabolos. A substantive is a word or group of words used as a noun, which are not regularly nouns by themselves. Below in this chapter, in verse 11, diabolos appears as an adjective, where it is rendered as slanderous. The verb diabolo, or diabolo, diabolo, originally meant to throw or to carry over and was used for one who was set at variance or set against another. So eventually, in classical literature, it came to be used to describe the act of attacking a man's character, to calumniate, and also to misrepresent or speak or state something slanderously, and then generally to give hostile information, even without malice, but also to deceive by false accounts, to impose upon or mislead. It is in this last sense that the adjective is most often used in scripture, especially in places where it is used as a noun. In those instances, the King James Version has translated it as devil. As it says in Proverbs chapter 16, 
When a man's ways please Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The Apostle Peter had warned his readers in his first epistle to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, the false accuser, as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. There is a natural enemy in the goat nations and in the tares of the field, among whom are the Jews of the time of Christ. And there is simply the slanderer, anyone who has a cause against a man for any particular reason, whether it be personal gain or some sort of vengeance or out of some sort of jealousy. Where Paul writes this in reference to those outside, he means to refer to those outside of the body of Christians. Likewise, Paul advised in Colossians chapter 4 that in reference to those outside, you walk in wisdom, buying the time. Paul had told the Corinthians that those outside, Yahweh judges. 1 Corinthians 5.13 And the Christian should know that Yahweh has reserved vengeance to himself. As Paul cites the statement in the Prophets, in both Romans chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 10. As it is written in Nahum chapter 1, God is jealous, and Yahweh revenges. Yahweh revenges and is furious. Yahweh will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Until then, the children of Israel can only take up the full armor of Yahweh, in order that you may be able to make a stand in the evil day, and even to stand, all things being accomplished, as Paul had advised in Ephesians chapter 6. Now Paul continues by speaking of some of the qualities which should be found in men chosen to be ministers, which are servants of the assemblies. And he says, in like manner, reverent ministers, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not shamefully desirous of gain. The King James Version has deacons here, rather than ministers. And when the translators of that version chose such a word, it is apparent that in their endeavor to uphold the authority of the structure of the Anglican Church, they created an artificial distinction between ministers and deacons. The Greek word, diakonos, is a servant, and usually in the King James Version it is translated as minister, a word which comes into English directly from a Latin word for servant. When translating the Christogenian New Testament, we wanted to distinguish between such voluntary servants of the kingdom of God and common slaves. The slave is a doulus. So we often translated diakonos as minister and sometimes as servant, depending upon the context. The King James Version also did this, except on five occasions where the word is deacon four of which are in this chapter of the first epistle to Timothy, chapter 3, and the last which is in Philippians, chapter 1. In each of the five places, the term should be ministers, 
minister or ministering, where twice the word is from the corresponding verb, diakoneo. Here the Greek noun, di, or I should say, dilogia, was used in the classical writings to describe repetition. In this verse, we have the Greek adjective, dilogos, which is apparently known only from the New Testament, and is usually interpreted to being double-tongued or doubtful, as Liddell and Scott have it citing this very passage. The King James Version also has double-tongued here. It is possible that Paul used this term as he used the similar word, dialogismos, in Romans chapter 14, where he seemed to mean doubtful. But in that passage, the word may also mean argumentative. We may have done better to have interpreted dialogus in that same manner here, as argumentativeness involves, often involves repetition. Where Paul warns that ministers should not be addicted to much wine, the Greek verb prosecho has a wide variety of meanings in various contexts, but the King James Version has given here, which is appropriate. Other ways that the word prosecho may have been rendered here are attached to or devoted to, for which reason we chose to, re- to write addicted to. The phrase oinus polis, which is much wine, is absolutely literal. Thereby, it is evident that the consumption of at least a little wine or some wine is certainly permissible, but of course drunkenness should be shunned. Paul gave Titus many of these same warnings concerning supervisors or bishops, and we must understand that essentially men holding either office should be held to the same expectations. Where Paul warns against choosing men who are shamefully desirous of gain, where the King James Version has not given to filthy lucre, as it also does in Titus 1.7. As we discussed presenting that verse, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul spoke of the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote in part, For we are not as the many, selling the word of Yahweh in trade, but as from sincerity, rather, or even, as from Yahweh. Judaizers, teaching salvation by works, basically sell the dispensation of rituals to the unsuspecting sheep. Greedy men, would be quick to compromise the word of God for their own profit. They should be put out of any office that they may acquire. Later, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul warned of those who were corrupting the minds of men and defrauding them of the truth, supposing piety to be a means of gain. Religion is a business. Evidently, 
the medieval Catholic churches forbid priests to marry so that they may increase their gain. Paul will touch on that subject again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, almost as if he knew what was going to happen. (laughs) Paul now exhorts that servants of the assembly, these ministers, be found holding the mystery of the faith with a clean conscience. There are several aspects of the mystery of the faith. The most important is explained by Paul towards the end of this chapter as the mystery of piety or godliness that Yahweh God was manifest in the flesh as a man, Yahshua Christ. Another aspect of the mystery of the faith is found where Paul explains in his epistles to the Ephesians and the Colossians the mystery that the nations being gathered to Christ were indeed the nations which came from the loins of Abraham, the children of Israel who were scattered by Yahweh in their punishment, that many centuries before time they would be regathered again. Paul also mentioned that mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and announced in Romans chapter 16 that it had been revealed as Paul also explained it throughout that epistle. Altogether, The mystery of the faith is the scattering of Israel for their sin, the promises of God to regather Israel in his mercy, the reconciliation of Israel in their acceptance of the gospel of Christ, and the reasons why Yahweh God had to come as a man and die on their behalf in order to be reconciled to them, which Paul summarizes in Romans chapter 7 and here at the end of this verse at the end of this chapter. As Paul said in Romans chapter 16, Now with ability you are to stand fast in accordance with my good message and the proclamation of Yahshua Christ, in accordance with a revelation of mystery having been kept secret in times eternal, but being made manifest now through the prophetic writings, in accordance with the command of the eternal Yahweh, for the submission of faith to all the nations, which are the nations of the seed of Abraham, to whom the promise was assured, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4. In discovering that Yahweh alone is wise, through Yahshua Christ, to whom is honor for the ages. The only promises found in the prophetic writings are those which we have just summarized here. This mystery was made manifest when Paul announced the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh their God among the nations of Europe who were the descendants of those same scattered Israelites. Promised reconciliation and recovery in the prophetic writings. That will be the topic of our program when we do when we present part four of this epistle to Timothy. Then Paul concludes in the next verse that even holding the mystery of the faith with a clean conscience, we are still subject to scrutiny, where he says, but even they must be scrutinized first. Then, being void of offense, they must minister 
being scrutinized first, meaning that before they are elected to any office, they must have the leadership qualities expected of Christians, even before they are permitted to assume such an office. The King James Version has the use of an office of a deacon, here in place of the third-person plural imperative verb, which we have rendered, they must minister. The clause may have been rendered, then being void of offense, let them minister. Now Paul momentarily turns his attention back to women, and in this case, more specifically, the wives of men chosen as leaders, and says, likewise, reverent wives, likewise having, the verb having should be implied, likewise, reverent wives, not slanderous, sober, trustworthy in all. And the Greek word diabolos is primarily an adjective, so it is slanderous here, where it does not appear with the definite article, it is not being used as a noun. Paul also used it in a general exhortation concerning women in Titus chapter 2, where he exhorted that elder women, in like manner, in a condition befitting sanctity, not slanderous, not enslaved to much wine, teachers of virtue, in order that they may admonish the young women to be lovers of husbands, lovers of children, discreet, pure, good homemakers, being subject to their own husband, in order that the word of Yahweh is not blasphemed. So a man chosen to serve the assembly is expected to have a wife who exhibits herself in general conformance with the same Christian ideals. Paul then continues concerning men who would be chosen as servants of the assembly, and he says ministers must be husbands of one wife, just like the supervisors or bishops, governing their children and their own houses well. For they that are ministering well obtain for themselves a good degree and much liberty in the faith, which is in Yahshua Christ. Like those chosen to be supervisors, the bishops or leaders of the assembly, those chosen to serve the assembly as ministers must also have had experience raising their own families, learning to govern their own houses before being appointed to help govern the greater household of Yahweh their God. When men are blameless, only then, or when they at least seek to be blameless, only then do they really have a liberty to judge others. As Christ himself said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 7, Judge not, that ye not be judged. Saying that, he was warning against hypocritical judgment. So he said in another place, in Matthew chapter 12, For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And on the other side of the proverbial coin, those who judge their brethren without mercy shall have no mercy in judgment. The Apostle James said in the first chapter of his epistle, Now you must be doers of the word, and not hearers only, defrauding yourselves. Because if one is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing the appearance of his race in a mirror. 
for he observes himself and departs and immediately forgets of what sort he was. When we are hypocritical judges, we're liable to act like niggers. But then in the second chapter of his epistle, he said, For he who should keep the whole law, but would fail in one thing, has become liable for all. For he, having said, You should not commit adultery, also said you should not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Thusly you speak, and thusly you do, as if going to be judged by a law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy for him not effecting mercy. Mercy exalts over judgment. So they who minister well obtain for themselves a good degree and much liberty in the faith which is in Yahshua Christ. Ministers should act with a, an even hand. Here we will end our presentation just short of the end of this chapter. We have already discussed in part certain aspects of the final three verses where relevant topics have arisen in our first few presentations of this commentary on 1 Timothy. When we resume, we will backtrack a little bit and we will address the final passages of this chapter once more. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.